continuing our series in Genesis chapter 1, uh, Genesis 1 through 3 actually, and uh, this evening reading verses uh, from both chapters 1 and 2. Let's begin Genesis 1 verse 26, and then we'll jump over to Genesis 2 15. The word of God from Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis chapter 2 and beginning in verse 15. Now the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heaven, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word to us This evening, in 2014, news agencies around the world reported the very exciting news of developments at Facebook. Uh, They had brought some changes to their platform, which was in your setting up your personal profile, you could choose over 50 uh, genders as you uh, created your page. Now today, I, I just checked this past week, they have simplified things. There no longer, there's no longer a drop-down box with 50-plus options, uh, but rather uh, there's three, male, female, custom. And if you click custom, a box comes up and you can type in uh, whatever you feel uh, best describes your particular gender expression. It does certainly capture the way our world thinks uh, about Gender, maybe better than anything else, this idea of it being customizable. 
So like vanity plates or tailor-made dresses or your order at Culver's, gender now can apparently come however you want it. But as we turn to Genesis 1 and 2, there is no drop-down option, is there, Um, when it comes to gender? And there is no custom option either, no box to type in. There's just two genders asserted, male and female. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why does the Holy Spirit include that distinction when describing the start of the world? Well, I would say quite simply, it's for this reason. Without a proper understanding of gender, the world won't work right, and neither will you. Without a proper understanding of God's good design and gender, the world won't work right, and neither will you. So first, this evening, what do we learn of gender from Genesis 1 and 2? We're going to consider what we learn from it, then how we've forgotten that, and then finally again, why it all matters. First, what we learn, well, we see that the image of God is male and female. Uh, We're told that explicitly in Verse 27 of chapter 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both men and women represent God in this new world. Um, they, They share the image of God equally. That's explicitly stated there. But then it's implied through the remainder of the creation story. How so? Well, part of representing God was this rule or dominion that mankind was to have over the earth. That, that dominion that mankind was to have is part of being made in God's image. We saw that last time as image bearers, uh, humanity is made to be able to hear from God, to, to, to interact with God, and, and therefore in hearing from God to submit to him. That's why as soon as God creates man, we read in verse 28, God bless them and said to them, he speaks, there's instruction in man as the image bearer of God, is expected to heed God's instructions. So God instructs them to to do what? To be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve were created equally, uh, or were charged equally to rule the earth. Why? Because they were equally image bearers of God. And, And there isn't a whole lot of theology needed to prove the point. Common sense will tell us that man and woman were both necessary to fulfill this mandate from God, Adam could not have been fruitful and on his own. He could not have multiplied himself. And so the privilege of being uh, made in God's likeness is one that is shared by men and women alike. But even so, we also learn from Genesis 1 and 2 that while they share in the image of God equally, while they share in the responsibility equally, they're given different tasks in accomplishing this responsibility, given different means of executing uh, the task. So you turn to Genesis 2, verse 15, and we see um, that, um, well, actually, we turn to uh, verse 7. We didn't read that, but there we see that man and woman, they were not created simultaneously. Man was created first. In verse 7, the Lord God formed the man. But then in 15, he takes that man that he has created and... Uh, he places him in, in the garden. The, the, the fact that man is created first will be, quote, uh, will be uh, appealed to by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. 
as um, evidence for why men should have authority over women in, in the church specifically. So in Second uh, Timothy or First Timothy two fifteen, or I'm sorry, no, in Genesis two fifteen, um, we see then that this man that he's created, he places in the garden to work it and to keep it. So man is created first, and then man also is the one given specifically the charge. It's not to humanity in general, but to man specifically to guard and to keep. So we learn from chapter 1 that male and female together have this charge of dominion, of ruling. But it is man, male specifically, that has the charge of working, keeping, guarding, tending, protecting the garden, working the ground. And then the command of 16 and 17, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat God's law. Notice that also comes specifically to man. Now, does that mean that Eve would not be responsible to keep that command? Well, of course not. But whereas Adam received that, that instruction as direct revelation from God, Eve is to learn of her duty before God from her husband. He has a responsibility to teach her uh, what God expects of her and to lead her in that kind of living. So again, there's this sense of authority that the man has and that he is made first and that he is instructed directly from God and that he has an opportunity or I mean a responsibility, excuse me, to lead his wife in that way. So you put all those facts together. Genesis 1 and 2 is painting the picture of man as leader, man as protector. Um, just as he was to guard and keep the garden, he should guard and keep the woman. And by virtue of God's design, he possesses this sort of authority that the woman does not have. Um, this is, again, seen in the fact that he names the woman. He's naming all the animals. That's a sign that he has dominion over the animals. And then he names his, his wife. Verse 23, she shall be called woman. And actually, it happens again in 320. He names her again. She shall be called Eve. Naming is a sign of authority. So that's the man, this this authority figure, this leader, this protector, um, that's his charge in fulfilling the commission of image bearers of God to have dominion over the earth. In comparison to the man, the head, the leader, the protector, the woman is, is presented as being the helper. Uh, she comes to assist the man in the duty that he has been given to obey and glorify God. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be Alone, this is verse 18, I will make him a helper fit for him. Helper is not a demeaning term at all. It's one that God himself owns. Psalm 54, 5, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 118, 7, The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Uh, Kevin DeYoung writes this. He says, Etzer, that's the Hebrew word for helper, Etzer, is a functional term, not a demeaning term. Helper cannot be divorced from the broader concern of the creation mandate. It was not good for man to be alone because he himself could not be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so here again, DeYoung says, we see the ordered complementarity of male and female. Another man could have helped Adam till the soil. Another man could have provided relational respite and energy for Adam. God could have gifted Adam a plow or a team of oxen or fraternity of manly friends, all of which would have been useful, even delightful, but none, have could, none could have been a helper fit for the crucial task of producing and rearing children 
And so, if mankind is to have dominion on the earth, there must be a man to work the garden and a woman to be his helpmate. So, just as husband and wife are viewed as a team, we should consider husband and wife as a team working together. That's how male and female are meant to work in the bigger picture of, of God's plan for humanity. They're, they, they are complementary to one another in how they image God and how they glorify him. They have differing gifts, differing responsibilities, differing abilities. Um, but there is this interdependence between man and woman. Both are needed, and that's even seen in the name. Uh, that actually comes out in, um, in our English, right? You, you can't have the word woman without the word man, and that's actually what happens in Hebrew. In verse 23 of chapter 2, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, the Hebrew for man is ish, and woman is isha. So again, it takes the word for man, ish, and it adds that other syllable onto it. But the idea is, because she comes from man, man is in her name, but there's this interdependence. You can't have one without the other. Both together image God, glorify God, each have equal dignity. And that interdependence is reason enough for us to celebrate and be grateful for each gender equally so. That's what we learn from Genesis 1 and 2, briefly, regarding gender. But see, secondly, how we've forgotten it. Uh, it doesn't. It didn't take a whole lot. Uh, it didn't take that long for humanity to forget this. In fact, the fall is caused in part by an abandonment of gender roles. Right? Adam neglects that duty of guarding and protecting um, the garden. Right? Allowing the serpent to get in there, and then the serpent tempts Eve. And we know that Adam is standing right there, letting this happen. So not only does he not guard and keep the garden, he does not guard and protect. His wife, he does not effectively teach the woman or correct the serpent's lies that she's drawn to. Gender roles are rejected there. Beyond that, the effects of the fall are immediately described in terms relating to human gender and sexuality. As soon as the fall happens, man and woman become ashamed of their bodies. They become ashamed of what marks them, what designates them as male or female. And then the curse from God comes, and that curse is upon their different responsibilities as men and women. The, the ground that man is tasked to, to, to guard and to, or to work and to tend and to keep, it's going to produce thorns and thistles. And the woman as the helper, the one who would produce children and rear children, now that will be done through painful labor. And so who says that gender roles don't matter? They forgot this very quickly. Uh, we've been continuing to get the design of God's, um, uh, the, God's good design disordered ever since. Now, when we talk about getting gender things wrong, you know, I, I imagine immediately we think of hot-button topics like transgenderism. And indeed, uh, unquestionably, that is the fullest expression of, of gender perversion that we have yet to uh, witness But it's not the only perversion, and in fact, it's an issue that's much more prevalent than we might think. There is a log in our own eye that we need to deal with before we point out the speck in the world's eye. So consider with me some of the ways in which we we forget or we abuse these very basic principles that God wove into the creation at the very beginning. He said, this is very good. This is very good. Consider some of the ways we forget it. Well, we forget it in our own homes. When a husband neglects his responsibility to provide for his family. That good order of God is disregarded. 
When wives constantly challenge or nag their husbands about decisions for them and the family, that God-glorifying role of male and female that's turned on its head. And just as these roles can be turned on their heads, they can also be exploited as when the man perverts the power and strength he's been given to protect the woman to instead abuse her. So we forget it in our own homes. We've forgotten also what Genesis teaches about gender in the church, particularly when men abdicate their responsibility, their charge from God to lead the church, and women take their place. But on the other end of the spectrum, the silencing and the abuse of women is, an uncom- is not an uncommon tale told in the church either. The church is to be a society of sacred siblings, brothers and sisters, who love and who respect and honor each other in their various roles and gifts. We've forgotten what Genesis teaches about gender in our societies as well when we speak uh, in a derogatory manner of the other sex, when we countenance crude joking at the expense of another gender when we sexualize or exploit uh, men or women. Uh, Women certainly is the bigger issue in our entertainment world. Either way, though, this sort of objectification degrades the image of God, and we promulgate that, that debasement anytime we give that exploitation our eyes, anytime we give it our likes on social media, anytime we even give it Our money, we are funding these things through the streaming services we subscribe to or the movies we purchase or rent. Society, of course, exhibits other more organized forms of transgressing God's design for gender. A major one would be uh, contemporary feminism. Um, What I'm speaking of here is we're on to the fourth wave. I don't know if you realize this, the cultural... um, Critics and um, uh, social commentators say we're, we're in the third or fourth wave of feminism. So we're not talking about the suffragettes of yesteryear who fought valiantly uh, for equal rights in an effort that could only come from an understanding, uh, conscious or not, of the Imago Dei. Right? We're not talking about that. Today's feminists don't want to be equal with men in society. They want to route men out altogether and to prove that they don't need men. Yeah, that was never God's design. It was never God's design for for men to say, I don't need women, and for women to say, I don't need men. Again, this interdependence. And and you see, I'm talking not just relationally. I'm not just saying, you know, in a husband-wife relationship. I'm talking about in society. Each are needed. Well, feminism does this now through vulgarity, protests, obscenity. They speak of things like toxic masculinity, Hegemonic masculinity, mansplaining are some phrases you hear. Men are dismissed outright in many instances of ever being able to make um, an an educated, um, useful decision that would involve women. How did this all happen? Well, Mary Eberstadt, who is a cultural critic and she's an essayist, she writes with uncanny insight on this point, drawing our attention to the fact that this has resulted directly from second wave feminism during the time of the second revolution, or the sexual revolution, excuse me, um, in the 1960s. She said, if you go back to the 1960s and the sexual revolution, you see that that has crippled our culture by removing the role of men in society or the proper role of men in society. 
And so she explains that the way men, many women behave today is strategy um, designed to compensate for the post-revolutionary strengthening of predatory men and also the paucity of enduring positive male attention and the paucity of male protection. She says, well, now we have predators and we lack positive male attention because of the sexual revolution. How so? Listen to this. She says, the arithmetic is simple. The sexual revolution reduced the number of men who could be counted on to serve as protectors from time to time and in several ways. Broken homes put father figures at arm's length, at times severing their parental bond for good. The rise of recreational sex blurred the line between protector and predator, making it harder for many women to tell the difference altogether. Simultaneously, the decline of the family has reduced the number of men offering affection and companionship of a non-sexual nature to women. So there are now fewer brothers, fewer cousins, fewer uncles, and others who could have once been counted on to push back, figuratively or otherwise, against other men treating mothers, sisters, daughters badly. Also simultaneously, the overabundance of available sexual partners has made it harder to hold the attention of any one of them. And that has diminished social and moral, I'm sorry, it has diminished diminished the social and moral cachet of what was once the ultimate male attention getter, marriage, right? Now you you don't get male attention the way you used to because of the abundance of sexual partners. The result, Eberstadt says, is that many women have been left feeling vulnerable and frustrated. And so the fury, the swaggering, the foul-mouthed rhetoric of fourth-wave feminism promises women what many can't find elsewhere, protection. It promises to constrain men in a world that no longer constrains them in traditional ways. Into this vacuum of vulnerability, feminism speaks an implied message of ostensible hope. We will rein men in by other means. So this is what Eberstedt is, is saying happens when you lose marriage, when you lose monogamy. You increase predators and you lose men who would look out for women. So if I could put it quite simply, the stability of our society depends on men and women acting like men and women the way God designed. Otherwise, things devolve into chaos. And that is seen most clearly in the rise of transgender ideology. It feels to many of us, perhaps, like this came out of nowhere. And in one sense, it has. It just came out of nowhere. We live in a technological age that means that through hormonal treatment, through surgeries, um, one could actually live out their fantasy in a way they could not have done several decades ago. A hundred years ago, if if a man told his doctor, I feel like I'm a, a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would say, that is a problem with your mind, and we need to treat it. Uh, Now, if a man goes to a doctor and says, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would say, that's a problem with your body, and we can fix that for you. We can get you a new body. So it is a newer phenomenon in that sense, but individuals having dysphoria, it's called, or disordered desire to be a different gender, that is actually nothing new. Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman should not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. That's in Deuteronomy. It's in the Mosaic law. In the New Testament, Paul spends a good deal of time talking about how men and women should dress and wear their hair. 1 Corinthians 11, about head coverings and hair length. 
We don't have the time to unpack that fascinating and confusing chapter, but we can glean with certainty here that the apostle directs us to honor the Lord in how we present our sex, how we present our gender. A man has the body of a man and should represent himself likewise. A woman has the body of a woman and she should represent herself likewise. And now to say that though is considered repressive today, it's considered backward, a phobic, transphobic would be the term that's used. And as the trans ideology continues to gain momentum, we will be unable to avoid uh, the consequences in wider societal engagement. So this is important for us. Uh, Carl Truman explains why we won't be able to avoid it. There's no way to just kind of tuck your head down and act like um, you don't need to deal with these issues. This is what he says, Carl Truman, uh, in his book, Strange New World. While gay marriage has created problems for Christian florists and cake bakers, It is arguable that most of us have not found it to impinge uncomfortably upon our lives in any obvious way, the legalization of gay marriage. Trans ideology, however, is different. This is because so much of traditional society has been shaped by the assumed reality of the gender binary. From school bathroom facilities to sports to prisons to hospital wards and beyond, the basic distinction between male and female is all-pervasive. It shapes notions of privacy and safety. It has historically informed ideas of good manners and decorum, of modesty and public behavior. But when the binary comes to be seen as a mere social construction designed for the purpose of oppression, everything must change. And such change will be impossible for anyone to avoid or ignore precisely because it has such serious implication for public spaces and even for the relationships of parents, children, and the state. So I'm hoping you're beginning to see why the Bible's teaching on gender is not irrelevant um, or unimportant, but extremely valuable for us to grasp in this day and age. And so just to make the point all the more clear, I want to conclude tonight by giving you five reasons why you should really care about this, why it matters. Uh, And what I mean by this, I mean gender, uh, what the Bible has to say about gender. I'm not... um, Uh, concluding these comments referring to transgenderism specifically. I hope you picked up earlier. There are a lot of ways in which we get this wrong. Um, So these five points apply to all of that. So why the teaching in Genesis 1 and 2 and the rest of Scripture matters? First, for the glory of God. It matters for the glory of God. God made the world with distinctions, right? We saw a couple weeks ago, each according to their kinds. And he is glorified when we submit to those distinctions. Kevin DeYoung, again, in his book, uh, Men and Women in the Church, he says, how we use our bodies is not a separate matter from who we are and how God made us to be. God created male bodies and female bodies, and these different bodies carry moral oughts, A-U-G-H-T-S, oughtness. They carry moral oughts according to God's good design. He's saying, just based on how, you made, how you're made, the general revelation of your own body dictates a sort of obedience to God's design. And to war against that design is to war against the designer. So if we want to glorify God, we submit to his will, his design even. Os Guinness, the great apologist, writes that the story of creation is a story of distinctions, a distinction between heaven and earth, a distinction between male and female. And he says, in fact, the Jews called the Lord the great discriminator because his creation discriminates between things. But when you remove those discriminations, you get idols. 
Think about how when God has at times removed those distinctions, it's always in judgment. God removed the the distinction between heaven and earth at the flood, and heaven came down on earth and destroyed the whole world except for Noah and his family. God gives men and women up to their perversion in Romans 1, we're told, as a form of judgment. He gives them over to the ways in which they no longer um, heed his discrimination. So, friends, if we want to glorify God and not be recipients of his wrath, we will honor what he has made and the way he has made it, including ourselves. Why does this matter? Second, gender matters for the honor of Christ, not only the glory of God, but the honor of Christ, because Jesus, who calls us brothers and sisters, came to earth to redeem us from the ways in which we have disordered God's creation. God gave rebellious humanity up to their sin, but for those who repent, we are told then said he's given his son up for them. I want you to see this. It's in Romans chapter 1. Turn with me there to Romans chapter 1. And start with verse, we'll start with verse 24. Three times, though, we're told how God has given up to judgment, to curse those who reject him. Romans 1.24, follow along with me. Therefore, after listing the ways in which humanity has rebelled against God, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. Among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due. Penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to do what ought not to be done. Three times, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. And then you turn the page to Romans chapter 8. And the gospel shines through so brilliantly. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. Same verb as from Romans 1. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What did he give him up to? He gave him up to the wrath and and to the curse of God. The judgment that, that, that fallen humanity receives in Romans 1, for those who are in Christ, Christ receives. That's what Romans 8 tells us. If you believe in Jesus, God gave him up so that you would never be given up or given over to your sins. And so, friends, since we, we know that this is what Christ has done for us as Christians, we honor him by living in light of his salvation. Because he was given up for us, then we should not give ourselves up to the ways in which we are drawn to to reject the responsibilities we've each been given in our bodies, whether male or female, or, or to follow um, desires that we have that are not in accord with scriptures. No. Since he's redeemed us from the curse of God, for the sins of disordering our gender roles or not honoring one another as image bearers, then we ought to die for those sins. 
I'm sorry, die to those sins. Because he has died for those sins, we ought to die to those sins. So, why does this matter? First, for the glory of God. Second, for the honor of Christ. Third, we reclaim the teaching on gender for our own good. We remember what Genesis tells us. Everything that God made, he made good. Very good, in fact. And so when we think that the Bible's teaching on gender is restrictive, um, when we think it's, it is contrary to what we think would actually be for our happiness and our fulfillment, the fault is not the Bible. The fault is us. God only ever commands that which is good. I love that line from 1 John. His commandments are not burdensome. That's a promise to you. His commandments are not burdensome. And so, happiness and fulfillment are found in submitting to God's yoke, not in bucking against it. We reclaim this teaching for our own good. Fourthly, we reclaim the biblical teaching on gender for the sake of the vulnerable. This is very important today. For the sake of the vulnerable. I think particularly of women and children. You know, in pursuing a desire to become women... Uh, men actually have found a new avenue to abuse them. Women's sports are a thing of the past. Uh, the reigning champions in many female sports are actually biological males. Who loses out in this? You know, we, if we care about women's rights, as we're meant to, as is good and right to do, but as our society says we care about women's rights, well, then our society is being um, incoherent at this moment. Because women are the ones losing out through the trans ideology. Beyond that, we fight for our children when we fight for this basic binary. They especially are targeted through the characters and the shows that are, that are presented to them, the messaging and the toys that they are given. Maybe you saw recently about American Girl Dolls um, and what they're doing. If you haven't, you can look it up on your own. Um, or the people are brought in to read at the local library's um, story hour, the curricula in the schools they attend. LGBTQ, LGBTQ activist Patricia Warren said, whoever captures the kids captures the future. Similarly, there's this group called Educate and Celebrate. It's a movement in the United Kingdom. Um, and it seeks to, in the founder's own words, quote, completely smash heteronormativity. What does that mean? It means the idea that heterosexuality is normal. This is what we want to do so our kids can grow up to be who they are. We have a responsibility for those who are vulnerable to protect them. Finally, we embrace this teaching, not only for the glory of God, the honor of Christ, for our own good or for the sake of the vulnerable, but for the love of our neighbor. For the love of our neighbor. Now, the world would think we have to uh, embrace them and to affirm them in certain ideologies if we want to love them. But the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So, friends, I want to remind you, because it's so hard sometimes, so hard sometimes, I want to remind you that when you stand for the truth, you are standing to love your neighbor who does not see that truth. Our stand for the truth is a sign of love for all who would otherwise be swept away by, by an ideology that is ultimately to their harm, both physically and mentally in this life, but spiritually forever after. And I want you to know, just as you cannot customize your gender, you cannot customize your love, it doesn't work like that as Christians. We are called to love our neighbor, and yes, even our enemy. And perhaps our enemy is, is the person across the street, is our neighbor. Maybe it's somebody in our family, somebody we work with. 
who is entirely bought in, hook, line, and sinker to this ideology such that they, they label you a bigot. Um, they, they are enraged to have this discussion with you. And they call you all kinds of things, and, and they, they think you hate them. That enemy, you are called to love. And there's no better way to love somebody who's lost in lies than by standing for the truth. And so I know it's hard. I know it takes courage. But take heart. We've not been given a spirit of timidity or fear, but of boldness in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that we would embrace what your word teaches in every matter. And tonight we consider what you have taught about being made in your image, male and female. Forgive us for the ways in which we have um, abused those distinctions when we have um, complained, perhaps even just internally and to ourselves about various roles and responsibilities that fall to us as men or women. I pray for our world that right now is very confused on this issue. Thank you, though, that you have the truth and you have entrusted it to us. Would you give us the opportunity to speak that truth in love? We ask that, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, 